All right, so the last two weeks, if you've got page 38 in front of you, the last two weeks we basically just covered two passages. We covered Romans 8, 28 through 30, and Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. That's what we've looked at the last two weeks, and I think we had two weeks on page 37 before we got to page 38. So this is like a five-week lesson that we've been covering, but today I'm confident we'll finish it. Um, We're starting at the bottom of 38, and we'll go through the top of 39. That's what the plan is for today, okay? Well, let me um, start us off with two or three quotes that I shared with you at the end of uh, the last lesson, and um, get our minds back on track here about what we were learning in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. As we were learning about election and predestination, all of that stuff, Wayne Grudem summed it up this way. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew say, The decree of election is the free and sovereign choice of God made in eternity past to set his love on certain individuals and on the basis of nothing in themselves, but solely because of the good pleasure of his will, to choose them to be saved from sin and damnation and to inherit the blessings of eternal life through the mediatorial work of Christ. What a long sentence that's so cool. Uh, You see some of the same themes repeated between Grudem and MacArthur. Nothing in themselves. Okay, God chooses people to be saved not based on anything in those individuals, but because of His good pleasure, of His will, His sovereign good pleasure. Okay, Um, John Frame puts it this way. This kind of election is unconditional. God chooses us before we choose Him. Our faithful response is a gift of His grace. So election to salvation is not based on anything we do. It is entirely gracious. It is also eternal, before the foundation of the world, from the beginning, before the ages began. All right, so that's how John Frame put it. So that's uh, kind of an overview summary of what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks to get our minds back on track here. Now, um, again, at the bottom of 38, now we're going to get into our notes and fill in a couple of these blanks here. When it comes to answering the question, why is it that all people are not saved? Now, that's a, a good, earnest question that a Christian would have. Why isn't it that God just doesn't save all people and and have all people go to heaven? Why doesn't he do that for everybody? If he elects and chooses based on his sovereign good pleasure, his sovereign good will alone, why doesn't he pick everybody? He doesn't like them, Joe says. Uh, Not exactly the most theological way of putting that. (laughs) Well, it basically comes down to two options, okay? So there are lots of different ways you can think through this, that you can try to articulate this, where you can try to land somewhere, but it comes down to really two options you'll take. One is that, well, God simply does not choose all, okay? And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And the other option is God lets all freely choose. So why are all people not saved? Well, one, on the one hand, you could say, well, look, God just doesn't choose everybody, and that's why not everybody is saved. Or, why doesn't God save everybody? Well, he lets them all freely choose, and not all people freely choose him, only some freely choose him. And that's kind of your watershed. Which side are you going to take on that debate? 
Well, if you choose the side that says, look, the reason why not all people are saved is because God does not choose all. Well, the greater purpose that you're elevating there is God's own glory as the sovereign. You're saying, look, he's in control of who's saved and who's not. And it's his will on who is saved and who's not. And he has purposes for not saving all people because even in the lives of the unelect, the people that he hasn't chosen who are born in their sins and who die in their sins, he has purposes in that showing his his judgment, showing his holiness, showing his wrath towards sin. He's using them for that purpose. And ultimately, the greater purpose here is that God is demonstrating his sovereignty and his sovereign goodness in the lives of those that he chooses and his sovereign judgment in the lives of those he doesn't choose. Joe. Oh, okay. Thanks for giving me the disclaimer. Well, well, hold on, hold on. In this view, we're not talking about people freely choosing. In this view, we're talking about God choosing. So this view doesn't bring in this, the free will concept. So the, the free will concept, um, again, we talked through this a little bit on Wednesday night. For those of you who were in the angels and demons class on Wednesday night, um, someone had asked a question about free will. And my response was, well, let's define free will. That has to be defined. Because um, we recognize that we cannot, of our own will, jump off a roof, flap our arms, and will ourselves to fly, can we? No, we're, we're limited creatures. We recognize that we cannot will ourselves to know all things, can we? We can't will ourselves to be perfect, can we? No. Okay. Uh, And we know that we have just certain inabilities. And in our natural state, what Scripture says in Romans chapter 7, in our natural state, you're born into this world unable to please God. That's one of your inabilities in your natural state. So when we start defining free will, we got to define it biblically here. And as you start defining it, your morality, your volition... Your worship starts getting more and more limited as you look what Scripture says you can do as you're born into a sinful existence. Stan? Yes. Now, see, we looked at this last week, and that's not what we said. He knows us. Not It doesn't say in Scripture, now, even though it's true, that he knows every single thing that's going to happen in your life. There's no doubt about that, okay? He's got perfect foreknowledge. But what those texts say is he knows the people he's chosen. He's known you. You are the object, not not your actions, as it describes it, but you yourself are the object of his foreknowledge. And what's important about that is these passages go on to link it to your salvation. Because what Romans 8 says is those whom he foreknew, not those actions he foreknew, but those people whom he foreknew, he predestined. There's a link between the two. And so, even though, yes, it's true, God knows all things past, present, future, those texts are emphasizing his relational knowledge that he knows a person, and that person is one who is predestined. Okay, good. So, if you land on that side, you're going to emphasize God's own glory as the sovereign. On the other side, though, if you're going to say, okay, no, the reason why all people aren't saved is because God lets all freely choose, you're emphasizing man's choice as free worship. And You'll have Christians on, all, on both sides of this debate, and there's merit on both sides, too, that we have to recognize. So if you're on this side, you're saying, well, look, God desires worship. He, free will offerings, free worship. Come to me and have relationship with me. Come, let us reason together, Isaiah chapter 1. This emphasis that you see in certain spots through Scripture of man being responsible to come to him. 
And, and I think it's good that both sides have each other to kind of take the edge off of each other. But ultimately, when you answer this question, you've got to kind of land in one spot of how this, how this works. Unless you're comfortable just saying, I'm never going to understand it and it's okay and I'm going to go to sleep. <laughs> That's fine too, okay? But, um, but this is really the, these are the two main camps where you end up. So let me give you an example. When I was a... Uh, a newer believer, I was definitely on this side of things, as most newer believers are. Okay. Now, over time, I've come more this direction, just full transparency. But I was having uh, lunch one um, day with an elder in our church who was definitely more this direction. This is back in Missouri, way, way more this direction. So I was at that time feeling like I was as far this way as you could go, and he was basically as far this way as you could go. And he wanted to talk to me about this issue. And uh, the scenario he presented was, say we go out and we share the gospel to two people. You got two people that are pretty much just alike, they're best friends or whatever they are. We go share the gospel with them. One believes and one doesn't. He says, isn't that evidence that God has chosen the one? They both heard the same exact message and one believed and one didn't. Isn't that evidence that God chose one of them? And I said, isn't that evidence that they have free will and the one rejected and one didn't? You know? I mean, you could look at every, almost every scenario from both sides, but you're going to have one paradigm or the other, really, at the end of the day. Okay? And it's, uh, it's one of those deals where it's like, yeah, you're never going to fully figure it out, and that's good, that's okay. But when it comes to understanding Scripture, you're going to have to have some sort of paradigm for how you, how you understand that. And not just Scripture, but the events in your own life, right? Uh, why things happen the way they do you'll end up emphasizing one over the other in most cases. Questions, thoughts on that? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so for example, someone sins against you grievously, we'll say. You know, fill in the blank on what the details are, but someone sins against you. Is there a very real, even immediate sense in which that was their free choice to sin against you? Well, certainly. They chose, that person chose to do that. And that person is responsible for that choice. Absolutely. Now, but then there's the other side where it's like, well, did God know about that? Yes. Is this in his plan? Yes. Has he, in some sense, ordained whatsoever comes to pass? Yes. See the difficulty here? Who are we talking about? Me. Oh, okay. I want to make sure you weren't talking about God. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Same here. Yep. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. He is long-suffering, full of grace and mercy, isn't he? Yep. Other thoughts, questions? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, full of head knowledge, but no heart desire. Yeah, no true faith. Yep. Okay, all right. The can of worms. It is a can of worms. Okay, 
Um, well, let's uh, press on here with this encouragement that I give you. Study what Scripture has to say. Learn what Scripture has to say. But remember, the question that must always be answered as you study Scripture is, what does the text say? And this is really challenging because a lot of times we approach the Bible thinking we already know the answers. Or we approach the Bible thinking we know what we want it to say and therefore it must say that. That's not the way it always is, is it? And that's very dangerous to approach the Bible thinking, um, this is what I'm feeling and so I'm looking for a confirmation of my feelings. Don't do that. That's, what, that's not why the Bible was given to you. The Bible was given to you to reveal... God's truth as he saw fit. And so we have to come to Scripture with a submissive posture, a humble posture, saying, Lord, speak. And he will inform us, he will instruct us. Dean. (laughs) No, we take to Scripture as a presupposition. It is true. You're a Christian, right? You believe the Bible is God's book then. By definition, that's what you are. You're a Christian. So you come to Scripture and you hear God speak. Okay, that's what we're doing. All right, let's talk about adoption and assurance. Beep, 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 beep. All right, go ahead. There, okay, so when we talk about, yes, yeah, sitting under someone's teaching, employ discernment, yes, absolutely. But when you are going to the Bible directly, this is a holy moment between you and the sovereign creator of all things, isn't it? And do you say to God, hmm, I don't know if I trust you. No, you come to God and you say, teach me. Yeah, yep, there's a distinction between those two. When you get other creatures involved, yes. But when you're, when you're directly hearing from the Creator, yeah, okay. All right, adoption and assurance. As these two passages express, Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 that we've looked at, the purpose of our predestination is the adoption as children of God. Here's a blank at the top of 39. We are not born as children of God. We become children of God upon becoming new creations in Christ. We only become children of God if we were predestined to become such. Now, for some of you, this might be a little bit of a paradigm shift. We are not born children of God. And we'll look at a couple of passages that teach that very, very plainly. This can be perhaps a little disheartening for some of you. But it's actually, um, if you're a Christian today, it's really, really good news for you because that means you've become a child of God through faith in Jesus by God's sovereign work in your life. And so, I mean, praise God, if you're a Christian today, you're a child of God. But you weren't born that way. Okay, Scripture, when it, Scripture teaches us about the nature of sin, how it begins from conception, it teaches us that we're not born on good terms with God. We are born needing to be reconciled to God. That's the whole point of the gospel, is we need to be reconciled to God, okay? So let's look at one of those passages together. Ephesians chapter 2, one of those classic bad news, good news passages. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7 is what we'll look at. And I would like two volunteers to read. Someone to take the bad news, verses 1 through 3, and someone to take the good news, 4 through 7. Who will be the bad news reader? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Stan, you'll be the bearer of bad news today? Okay, and who will get 4 through 7? Who will be the, uh, the good news person? Shauna, thank you. 
Okay, Paul Revere, the Redcoats are coming. Let's, uh, let's hear one through three of Ephesians chapter two, Stan. All right, we'll pause right there and just dwell on a couple of things. This is bad news, don't you see? Now, he is talking to Christians, so those who today are believers or at, in his day were believers. That's why he says at the beginning of verse one, you were dead in your trespasses. Don't you know that Christians are alive? Praise God, you're alive. You've died with Christ, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. You have the gift of eternal life that's begun already. You're alive. You have the resurrecting power of God indwelling you. Now, you may not feel like it on a rainy Sunday morning when you didn't get enough sleep last night, but it's true. Stan. Uh-huh. Well, let's go back even before the baby's born to Psalm 51, verse 5, where David says, he was even sinful from conception. In sin, my mother conceived me, he says. Well, this goes back to how we believe uh, that God creates in the womb. So, for example, Adam, there was no womb for Adam. Dust of the ground created directly by the hand of God. He breathed into the nostrils, there was breath. No sin. He was good, very good, good. Okay, jump ahead to Cain and Abel. They were formed in the womb. First two people ever formed in the womb. Now, did God directly form them in the same way he directly formed Adam? Or... Is it now a natural process that God has set in motion because he created man, he created woman, and now the two of them, by a natural process, produce life. Just, I mean, animals produce life, but man and woman produce life, and it's a natural process. That doesn't mean that children are no longer made in the image of God, but they're made through their parents, and they inherit from their parents a nature. Is that, which one of those is more true, that God creates us directly individually in the same sense that he created Adam, or we're a product of natural processes that cause us to inherit something from our parents. Jeremiah and Paul. and Well, see, but now we're going back to, did they know their actions or did he know the people? What did the text emphasize? He knew the people. He knew the persons. That's what the text emphasized. Okay. So, so the reason why children are sinful from conception is because, and this is a good point. Let's all go back to G Genesis chapter 5. Let's go back to the first book, Genesis chapter 5, 1 through 3. So, Shauna, don't forget, you're still on the hook for Ephesians, okay? But Genesis 1 through, or 5, chapters uh, 5, verses 1 through 3, look at how it describes this. Now we're we're past the Cain and Abel event, but this text still applies to Cain and Abel as it talks about Seth. Genesis 5.1, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. All right, this is the creation of Adam from the dust of the ground, breathing in his nostrils. He's very good. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. All good stuff. No sin. Verse 3. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, so by this point now he's a sinner, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. Oh, look at what it says. In his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So, Adam was created directly by God in the, in the sense he could be called the son of God, as Luke's gospel calls him that, because he was directly created by God. However, when it comes to Seth, Adam's offspring, between uh, Seth and God is Adam, his father. And he inherits from Adam, his father, likeness and image from Adam, which is now fallen. It's in a fallen state, this likeness and this image. Is the image and likeness still there? Yes, man is still made in the image of God. But has it been skewed? Has it been defaced? Has it been polluted? Has it been corrupted? Yes, it has. So you see what's going on here with the passing down, where uh, Seth not only is made in the image of God, he's also made in the image of Adam. And that applies to all of us too. So we inherit this corruption, this pollution, this defilement that came from the fall. And that's what's going on with our nature. Our nature is no longer pure, but from conception, we got issues. Okay? Yes. Okay, so now back to Ephesians chapter 2, starting, uh, well, no, there are a couple things we were still going to look at. In verses uh, 2 and 3, Paul uses terms that emphasize this fallen nature when he says um, in, in two, two senses, once in verse 2 and once in verse 3, he talks about our parents, our spiritual parents. Who are we children of according to verses 2 and 3? Okay, verse 3 says we're children of wrath. What about verse 2? Okay, verse, the end of verse 2, you might be, disobedience. disobedience, okay, so it doesn't say children, it says sons, maybe that was throwing you off. Our parents in our natural state, spiritually speaking, are disobedience and wrath. Was that true in your life? Now, that all depends on if you're being honest with yourself, doesn't it? <laughs> because we could all of course, be our own defense lawyers and make the case that we were perfect. But we know that's not true. And from the heart, we were sons and daughters of disobedience. We were children of wrath. Okay, so you see here being emphasized, not children of God, but children of wrath. In our natural state, we did not have God as our father. We had disobedience as our father. We had wrath as our father. We needed to be adopted. And that's the good news for Christians today, they can look back and say, God made me his child when he saved me. And that's what Paul describes in verses 4 to 7. So Shauna, whenever you're ready, let's do Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. All right. So look at what he's done in our lives, Christians. He's made us alive. He has, I love verse 6, seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. I mean, it's just so amazing. So that, what's he going to do in the future? He's going to show off, display the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So, we have been adopted, no longer children of wrath, but children of God. And what's true is that all people are either children of wrath or former children of wrath. That's just true of everybody. You can jot down John 8, eh, 
maybe we have time. Let's go. We have time. John chapter 8. Let's look at that. 39 to 46, where Jesus here is interacting with some children of Abraham, and he gives them some pretty hard teaching about their true father. He informs them how they are actually not children of God, but children of wrath. John chapter 8, 39 to 46. Who would like to read these verses for us? 39 to 46 of John chapter 8. Evelyn, thank you. Okay, let's stop right there. Look at what they say in 41. We are children of God. God is our Father. They are making the claim in front of Jesus, the Son of God, that they too are sons of God. Now, notice he doesn't say, oh, well, that's great. God bless you. Off you go. All right. 42, Evelyn. Okay. Wow, wow, wow. Um, Yeah, and 47, I don't know why I cut it off at 46. 47 says, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. I'm really driving home the point here that they're not children of God. Instead, they're children of the devil. So that's man's problem here. Even the really religious people, because that's who Jesus is talking to, the super duper religious people. Well, of course I'm a child of God. I go to church. You've heard the analogy, right? Uh, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Okay. So, uh, I'm a child of God because I go to church. A lot of people go to church. A lot of people go to a lot of different churches that teach all kinds of contradictory things. Jesus says you're a child of God or a child of Abraham, as he would put it here, if you do the deeds of God, if you do what God desires. And, and what was the ultimate deed of Abraham that gets brought up over and over again? In the New Testament, it's that Abraham believed and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, it's repeated multiple times in the New Testament that Abraham believed God. The ultimate work that Abraham did was to believe. That's why it says in uh, John chapter 6, Jesus teaches them, this is the work that God requires of you, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Not pay tithes. Not, you know, show up to church 90% of the time, though I would recommend that. Not, uh, you know, doing, jumping through this hoop or that hoop or the other thing. This is the work that God requires. I believe it's John 6, 29. That you believe in the one whom he has sent. That's why it says in Galatians chapter 3, talking about Abraham, the true children of Abraham are the ones who believe. And when you believe, you are identified with Abraham, the believer the Apostle Paul says. And what were these self-righteous Pharisees doing when they say, Abraham is our father, we were not born of fornication, God is our father. What were they doing? They were relying on their own pedigree, they were relying on their own works, they were rejecting Jesus to his face. They are not children of God. You're a child of God when you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, the true Jesus Christ, not a made-up Jesus Christ, but the real Jesus Christ. That's when someone is adopted and becomes a child of God. So now, as children of God, as Ephesians 2 was telling us, we are living co-heirs with Christ who share in His glorious exaltation. We share in the glory of God 
through Jesus Christ, who paid it all for us and was resurrected even on our behalf, that we would be exalted with him starting now. Not just later when you die, not just in the new earth, but even now, you are exalted with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2 says. One of those ver- that's one of those verses I really like to bring up with my LDS friends when we're talking about exaltation. It's like, look what Ephesians 2, 6 says. You don't work your way toward exaltation. You don't work your way toward a, a higher kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 2, 6 says, if you believe in Jesus, you've already been exalted with him in the heavenly places. And can you get any higher in exaltation than being with Jesus? No. <laughs> no. You can't think too highly of Jesus Christ. And so, if you recognize that Jesus is it, he is the ultimate, and believers are exalted with him presently and will be for all eternity, well, that's good news, isn't it? All right, Galatians 4, another passage I want to show you about adoption. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. This one uses the word adoption specifically. Um, we, we see it in John chapter 1 also. I don't have John 1 here, but you could jot down next to this, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. John 1, 1 to 14. What you'll find in there is this amazing verse that says, To all who believed in Jesus, he gave them to the right to be called children of God. All who believe in Jesus now have the right to be called children of God. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have that right. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're not adopted. And we see some of this in Galatians 4 also. Would someone read for us Galatians 4, 4 through 7? Who could read that for us? Alexis, thank you. All right. Very, very clear adoption language being used there. Christians were once slaves under the condemnation of the law. Uh, We were once slaves to sin. Romans talks about, Romans chapter 6 says, we were slaves to sin. We were unable to please God. That's a really key theme in Paul's theology. And we were under the law, under the condemnation of the law, slaves to the law. We were waiting, you could say, even though we weren't alive then. God's people were waiting for the adoption to come through the work of Christ. So now Christians are children of God who can call him father because he has adopted them as his own forever. What God does in the work of Christ is not only... Uh, just save us, but he brings us into a totally new relationship, doesn't he? That we are no longer condemned, facing him as our judge, uh, in our non-believing mind, trying to appease him, trying to make the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. We're no longer doing any of that. We're not slaves to that anymore. But instead... We are sons of God. We are made new. We are born again, given a new nature. And we are children, sons and daughters of God forever and ever. And we, can get, we get to call him Father. And no one can undo that. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Okay. Sarah. Yes. Yes. Hmm? Yes, this is a great question, Sarah, because I'm going to leave the cornucopia. That just looked like it was too much work. I can't erase that. Okay. That's just, I would feel bad. That looks too pretty. All right. So you've got a little bit of a timeline going on here, and I'm going to put an arrow at the end of this one because for God, time 
is not a thing. He's a creator, the creator, not a creature. All right. So in eternity past, you've got this predestination stuff and election happening. That does not happen in time. That is eternity past, EP, eternity past. That's when that happens, okay? Well, then um, we'll just say uh, here is creation. God creates. And uh, we know specifically Ephesians 1 says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So we're, that's what sends us to eternity past. Okay, and then we've got like your life that begins at a certain point. Okay, so in your life, this is not to scale, this is not proportionate, because if so, this would mean you live for like 2,000 years or something, okay? So, but in your life, you've got step one here, you're born in sin. That's what we've been talking about. Number one, you're born in sin. And then, at a certain point, we'll just say right there, you are called, i be consistent with my all caps here, Called by God. Now, when you're called by God, if you've been predestined to be called by God, this is, um, uh, let's see, we'll put here Ephesians 1, but we'll put here Romans 8, these two passages we've looked at recently. Okay, if you've been predestined by God, then when you get to this point in your life, the time of His choosing, you will be called by Him. All those whom God foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. So at some point in your life, you will be called by God. And at that time is when you're saved. And when you're saved, that's when you are adopted. You are uh, justified. You are born again. All of those things happen in that moment. It's not something that's a process. You don't get born again, and then you're, you're waiting a few weeks, and then you're adopted or anything like that. It all happens instantaneously at that moment, okay? Yes, you're born in sin, but then if you've been chosen by God, there's a time in your life you'll be called by Him and be saved. In between, so like this gap right here, from the time you're born until you are saved, you are not a child of God. This is important to recognize. Even though it's going to happen, there's an adoption that will take place. It's not yet. So, like this morning, we're going to sing the song, All I Have is Christ. One of the lines in that song says, As I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you, look up, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. So, in a very real sense, we were living a hell-bound life. Now, from God's perspective, were we ever going to go to hell? No. He was always going to save us, of course. He knows whom He has chosen. However, from our perspective, of course, yeah. And were we under the condemnation of God? Yes. Was the wrath of God abiding on us as unbelievers who were rejecting Him? Yes. But, praise be to God, He saved us. And now we're adopted, and there is no wrath for us there's only salvation. Big answer. I, you, that's more than you bargained for. But uh, I, think it's a, I think it's very important to recognize that, though. Okay? Thoughts or questions on any of that? I just walked through. Brandon? And that's the right question. I mean, it, it, as far as turning, your, turning you to humility, that's what this should do. That 
no, it's not me, it's all God. And there was nothing in me that was shiny and special that God said, ooh, I need that. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was all of God's grace, okay? Other thoughts or questions? Any of that? Okay? All right. To become children of God, we had to have been regenerated in our nature so that we would be changed from fallen rebels to righteous saints. Regenerated, that's the word that means born again. You had to be born again. You had to become a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away, all things have become new. That's necessary if you were to become a child of God through this adoption. And next week we'll examine the particulars of that. Um, starting on page 40, it's, a, it's another three-pager. That could take us another five weeks. So pages 40 to 42, we'll be talking about regeneration, sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ in this life, okay? But let's finish today by talking about assurance. That was adoption. Now let's talk about assurance. All of these, as all of these passages express, God's election and predestination make salvation Sure, that's your final blank on page 39. God's election and predestination make salvation sure, or you could say certain. Salvation is certain. There's no doubt about it. If God is the one who does the predestining, if God's the one who does the choosing, then salvation is absolutely sure. Consider how in Romans 8, it says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom God has chosen, he's for, he, those who he foreknew, he called, justified, glorified. All these words are in past tense. Called, justified, glorified. Have you been glorified yet with your new glorious body? No. Have you been either resurrected or changed in the twinkling of an eye? No. But is your glorification absolutely certain that it's going to happen? So certain that God could talk about it, like in past tense? Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. You are absolutely for sure going to be saved, body and soul. Ephesians 1 that we looked at, it's so God-centered. We looked at that, uh, we were looking at all the according to phrases. We were saved according to his will, according to his good pleasure, according to his kindness, according to, according to, according to him. Not according to us, but according to Him. And how we just see in both of those passages, the absence of our own actions contributing to our salvation. It's all God's work. It's not our work. Your salvation is certain. Joe. Yeah. Yes, in your soul. But one day your body will be too. What do you think of that? No more diverticulitis, Joe. Oh, that's true. No more surgery. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, no, nothing else falling apart. It's just going to be total restoration. That'll be great. So the same thing that's happened to our souls will happen to our bodies. We'll discuss more details next week, but consider these things as we wrap up. I'll ask you a couple questions. If God's choosing of you wasn't based on your action, how could you lose your salvation? Okay. Oh, okay. 
I don't know if we had a really strong answer there. <laughs> Anybody want to give a fuller answer? Like three sentences? Dean, you could give three sentences. Mm, okay. Now, but okay, so but let's uh, take a moment though to address, like Sarah said, there are people who stop believing. Like uh, Virginia just said, there are people who deny him. And that's obviously a real thing that happens, isn't it? That people who were Christians and they're not Christians. So Dean, how would you explain that? Okay, so yeah, the verse that Dean was just referencing is, uh, I'll start in verse 18 of 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 18 and 19. He writes, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. For they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so it would be shown that they all are not of us. So, what, what's he saying there in verse 19? You've got people who have... Stop believing, who have denied the faith, who have left the church, people who have exited. And yes, that happened to show that they never really were of us. Now, they went out from us, meaning, yeah, they were with us physically. We fellowshiped in the sense that we were in the same room, breathing the same air, patting each other on the back, saying, how are you? But they were never really of us in the sense that we were never really bound together spiritually. Our hearts were never knit together. There was never true faith. And their going out has proven that. Sam. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Exactly right. Joe? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, but that's kind of what we're saying is that it won't happen. If someone is truly saved, there won't be a denial of Christ. And, and remember what Jesus taught. If anyone confesses me, I will confess him before the Father and the angels. If anyone denies me, I will deny him. So um, that kind of rules out the possibility that someone could deny Christ yet be accepted by Christ, right? Now, there is the uh, issue of what do you do or with people who are True Christians, it seems, before and after this event, but the event is they have a gun to their head and they're told deny Jesus and they deny him and the gunman moves on to the next person. And afterwards, they're repentant and they seem like true believers and they seem that way beforehand, but in that moment, they denied him. That is a question some people will bring up sometimes because through the years of persecution, that kind of thing has happened. A knife to your neck, deny Jesus and say, Caesar is Lord, Right? Those are a little more difficult to work through. Um, however, um, if a person's repentant afterwards, I don't think that person committed an unforgivable sin, though I do believe it was a sin. So we'll have to just deal with all that when it comes. Mandy. Yeah. Yep. So Peter denied Jesus three times. Um, now, there is a distinction with Peter a bit in that um, this was before the founding of the church. This was before the death of Christ. It, Peter hadn't been born again. Uh, I mean, there was some sort of transition period that happened there. But we know it wasn't until Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit came and filled them. 
So um, there is a little bit of a distinction there in that we have the fullness of God indwelling us from the moment of salvation because in that moment we're born again. Yet with Peter, a little bit different. However, Peter had the advantage of like walking and talking with Jesus for three years. And we, that's a pretty big advantage that we don't have. So yeah, maybe it, maybe it cancels each other out. I don't know. Other thoughts, questions on this question? Yes. Yeah, John chapter 10, Jesus talks about those who are in God's hand cannot be removed from God's hand. And what's cool about that passage, one of the many things that's cool about that passage, is Jesus says, you're in my hand, and he also says, you're in the Father's hand. Same hand. Okay, there's one God. Three persons, but one God. And so, um, you are in my hand, no one can remove you from my hand. What an amazing, amazing passage. Uh, That should give us assurance of our salvation. And to kind of, it's basically the same question worded another way. Whose purposes must you thwart in order to lose your salvation? There you go. Who's the one who predestined you to salvation? God is. So you would have to thwart the will of God in order to lose your salvation. Who's able to do that? Okay? That's how you should be thinking about your salvation and how certain it is. It's God's doing. You can't reverse it. So I know that on the one hand, there can be some mixed emotions about this because you're thinking that, okay, God hasn't chosen everybody and that's, okay, if he's in charge and he chooses, that means he skips over some, he passes over some to choose others. And you can feel weird about that. But Think of the reassurance, if you are chosen by God, think of the reassurance that you can have that you're chosen by God, and no one can undo that. It's absolutely special. You are a vessel of His grace, a vessel of His mercy, a vessel of His kindness, that He chose you for that purpose, and no one can undo that. So on the one hand, where you may be feeling discouraged as you're coming to grips with this reality on, about he didn't choose everybody, but on the other hand, have your faith be bolstered here that he chose you, and those whom he has chosen, no one's going to be able to reverse. Cannot be reversed. That's the end of uh, this lesson, but we've got about five minutes left if anybody wants to kick anything around here. Joe. Yeah, well, also, easier to say when you're 81, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but, that is, but it is the right perspective for all Christians of any age. Paul says in Philippians 1, I'm hard-pressed. I know if I stay here for you, Philippians, if I'm here, for, it'll be a blessing for you because I can serve you. But I know that if I depart and be with Christ, it's far better. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Other thoughts, questions, arguments? Taylor. Taylor, right? Okay, very good. Oh. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that directly affects what assurance we could have of salvation. Um, so if God was a fellow creature, does, is he powerful enough to save you and to give you eternal assurance? No. But if God is the eternal creator of all things, and before time even began, he chose his own for salvation, is your salvation a lock? <laughs> yeah, you better believe it. The one who exists outside of time has reached into time and saved you. You're golden. You're good. You're in his hand. And what some people will do then is say, uh, they, they want to twist that to say, well, that means that you can just go off and you know, rob banks and cheat on your spouse and everything else now because you believe your salvation is sure. And that is such a misunderstanding of salvation because if you understand how Scripture teaches that we are born again and given a new nature and a desire for holiness and a desire for truth, and God changes us from the inside out and the Holy Spirit of God lives within us and gives life to our mortal bodies. Yeah, well, okay, we're going to go rob banks. <laughs> you know, it's just like so silly. It's so, so silly. Will we still sin? Yes, absolutely. And sometimes we'll sin in grievous ways. But is our desire as true Christians, is our desire always going to be to please God? And I mean, I I say always, but is our desire, is our life going to be generally characterized by wanting to please God? Yes. The moments when we sin, of course, that's when we're taking pleasing God and putting that lower on the list than it should be. But true believers will repent and be restored over and over again. Not that they ever lose their salvation, but they'll be restored back to good fellowship with God because they can through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, I'll go ahead and end us there and uh, we'll move on to the next thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are truly Lord of all creation, that you are outside and over time and space, and that you have chosen to glorify yourself through us by offering us the salvation in Jesus, by rescuing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your Son. Lord, we thank you for the adoption that we have, that we can be your sons and daughters, that we are your sons and daughters and can come to you that way, day by day. Lord, help us today to be encouraged all the more as we continue to look into your word and see what it is that you have for us. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name.